Welcome to the Data Stack Show. Each week, we explore the world of data by talking to the people shaping its future. You'll learn about new data technology and trends and how data teams and processes are run at top companies. The Data Stack Show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. You can learn more at rudderstack.com. Welcome to the Data Stack Show. Costas, we love talking with consultants on the show because they get to see so many things on the front lines. And they cross so many technologies, especially the ones that are vendor agnostic, implementing all sorts of technology. And today we're going to talk with Aaron Clymer. He founded Data Climber and a really interesting consultancy focused on you know warehouse visualization stuff. But he was really instrumental in turning Salesforce into a data-driven company, which is absolutely what I want to ask him about. You think about Salesforce, I mean, they're so successful. And I just want to know, what does it mean for them to go from being not data-driven to data-driven? I mean, that, that sounds weird. You would think that they would be out of the box. So that's one. And then if Aaron is so kind, like, I just want to ask him if he has any good Mark Benioff stories, because, you know, there are lots of those and he was there for a while. So that's what I'm going to ask him about. How about you? Yeah. What I love about consultants is that they have seen enough out there to summarize use cases, but also edge cases. So I think it's like, should we be like to talk about what patterns exist out there in building data infrastructure and also like share some, you know, weird stories, like some edge cases, some things that like you it's really hard like to hear about. So sure. yeah, that's what okay. I would love to chat about with him. And of course, like also to listen on the uh, Salesforce stories. All right. Well, let's dig in. Good. Welcome to the DataStack show, Aaron. Thanks for giving us some of your time. Oh yeah, absolutely. Thank you for inviting me here. Okay, we'll start where we always do. Give us your background and tell us what led you to starting a data climber. Oh, yeah. I've just been so passionate about the data space for so long. I had been in corporate America for 20, 25 years before starting this. And and I just realized, kind of dawned on me finally that I'm never going to be a true expert. I don't get into consulting. I was at Salesforce and Pop Sugar for 10 years. So two companies, two stacks, two sort of business challenges and data sets in 10 years. And I thought, I got to do 50 of those in a year, you know? So that's how I'm going to be able to walk into the next company or the next client and be able to say, oh, I know exactly what you need to do in this situation for this business problem you have in data. So I, I've just, I started a Data Climber. We're a systems integration data warehousing implementation firm. and. Started that six years ago and just have loved the journey ever since. Very cool. And could you describe just like a couple of recent projects so that we get a sense of, you know, what's a, I know having done consulting, there is no typical project necessarily, but maybe just a couple of examples of like clients and projects that you've done recently. Yeah, sure. We're in a lot of different verticals and industries simply because data warehousing overall is very applicable mm-hmm. across the board, right? And sure, we can do this almost everywhere. We happen to get into the 
major league sports and actually all of sports. Oh, wow. Early on, I think the San Francisco Giants were our fourth client. Oh, wow. Um, and the, there, it's just a very interesting story that I think does expand across industries, but uh, most major league sports teams are on a third party, you know, MSP, managed service, something, you know, yep. they're not doing their own stacks and they're all feeling a lot of pain around not being able to customize that way the way they want or bring in the data they want. So, so there's just this big need out there to own their own destiny, you know, own a stack, yeah. do whatever you need to do, you don't, you know, never get stuck kind of thing. And so that's resonated across the industry. So we've been at a lot of different sports teams we implemented for Las Vegas Raiders, the, the Vikings, six or seven other teams. And so we've done a lot, including working with the NFL directly. So that's been just kind of a fun, it's almost a niche. It's not, I don't want to label us as the sports SI because, but of course they're fun logos and they're, they're fun projects to talk about outside of that, a lot of gosh, payment providers, banks, financial services. I'm trying to think of a really interesting one to talk about. Yeah. Across the board, a lot of high tech too. I mean, I come from the Bay Area and high tech and, uh, quite a few COVID based as well, sort of, you know, health tech as well. Colors, one that's been really interesting, just to, they have a whole platform that sets up testing sites for medical testing. Mm. COVID tests would be a good one. Of course they cover. And just being able to really drive all of their, again, operate more of their operations through data, which isn't a topic I'm just excited about in general. So yeah, a lot, just yeah. a lot of different, uh, great. Pete's Coffee is a great one too. That's all uh, inventory mm-hmm. operations. More, more of a West Coast coffee company if you're from the West Coast, but uh, yeah. nationwide, technically. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I have to ask on the sports side of it. I mean, I don't know a ton about sports, but are you dealing with you know, if you think about a franchise, you sort of have like player data, but then you also have, you know, let's say like ticket sales, maybe more of the business side of the house. Are you dealing with both types of data or is, is there a specific flavor? Yeah. The first thing I always have to say is this is not the sexy ball, sexy money ball <laughs> aspect. Yeah, yeah. So it's not the player yeah. side. It's all the business side of these teams. It's sales and marketing that it's all about fan engagement at the end of the day. Which is why that translates sure. across the board, right? It's essentially customer engagement. Yep. You know, that would be the, the approaches are very applicable across industries. For sure. Makes total sense. Okay. Well, let's, uh, so a lot of questions about current stuff and what you're seeing on the grounds, you know, because one thing I love about consulting is that you get to see such a wide variety of problems at a wide variety of different business models and all the tools out there as well. But I'd like to rewind. So you spent a really long time at Salesforce. So I think you said it was seven or eight years at Salesforce. And, you know, as we were talking before the show, the main thing was really helping the company become more data-driven in a number of different ways. And we're talking about huge scale here, even though, you know, it's an even larger organization now. But you said you worked with I think it was 450 product managers and give us just an overview of kind of what was the state when you entered and then what was the state when you left? And then I'd love to pick your brain on, you know, how you actually drove that journey. Yeah, absolutely. In eight years does seem like a lifetime for a lot of people these days at one organization. Yeah, I came in there in 2008 and 
There was about 3,000 people at the time in the, com in the company. So I had a feeling they weren't using data as much as they could be. And sure enough, they weren't using data at all, actually. First thing I did there is actually build a predictive model against their 30-day free trial data set. I bet I could predict with some, you know, some kind of percentage accuracy who's going to convert, you know, which customers are going to convert yeah. based on 30-day free trial. I bet in the first five days, there's some interesting usage data, right? Sure enough, yeah, there was a signal there in the first five days. You could get a much better idea of who's going to convert. I brought that to the head of sales, presented my findings, and the answer I got was, well, why would we need data? We've got a huge sales force. We call every prospect on the phone and we talk to them. So I don't need data to help me in. And I, that was just, it just, it was a, that was a, a great example of what I sort of the headwinds I was facing. I'm like, okay, yeah. yeah, you know, there's no, no real need for data because we think we're doing everything as well as we can be. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was a lot of over eight years of having discussions with Mostly prior was mostly dealing with a product usage data set. So I was dealing with product managers and product more and talking to them, but it, that bled into sales, marketing, customer success as well. But it was just having a lot of conversations around, let's get out of the vanity metric sort of mentality of always having up and to the right number of users using my product because Salesforce always is up and to the right. As Salesforce grew 30% year over year, and I think it still is, you know, since day one, since 1999. So... Growth has not been the problem for Salesforce, but finding metrics that actually make a difference and using data that actually is going to be actionable was the challenge. So it was more about having the right conversation about what is actionable data, you know, and getting people to really think through, if I had the answer right now in front of me, what would I do? And if I could figure out what I would do, then it's worth measuring and worth finding out what is the answer to that, you know, business problem and what data do I need to answer that question? A lot of that, those kind of conversations. Yeah, for sure. And it's so interesting to hear, you know, you think about a company like Salesforce and you're like, well, surely it's data driven, right? It's so great to hear that's like, we call every customer on the phone. We don't need data. So what did it, how did you, I'm sure there's an infrastructure side to this, right? So was there any existing infrastructure for BI or, you know, the, what were the, well, maybe this is a good way to, to ask this question. How, what were the product managers using, right? Because, you know, 450 product managers across that many products, you know, what were they doing to get any intelligence on, you know, what they were trying to accomplish? Yeah, right. I mean, when I got there and unfortunately, one of the handcuffs of being at Salesforce was it, it took a long time to get cloud technology internally in there. So, I mean, I started mm. in 2008 and we were on an Oracle data warehouse with business objects, all this legacy stack that was very slow and very took a big team to maintain and operate and yeah, wasn't I cloud go, salesforce's whole thing though like it sure was, was like they're um, you know slightly hypocritical it's super hypocritical it came down to trust customer trust being their number one value and they really wanted to make sure they had tried and true technology internally that was super trusted that was it that was the reason so that made sense. I could see that, you know, from a business strategy standpoint, but unfortunately it just meant that we had to use technology that had been around for quite a while, right? Well, no cutting edge. So for me, it was about the patterns and, you know, luckily that is actually the key, I think, to uh, doing it right and doing it well and 
data warehousing specifically, patterns, design patterns, best practices, you know, that hasn't changed all that much. It's changed a little bit, but you know, a lot of those patterns that we developed on an old legacy stack still apply today in terms of best practices. So it's great to really hone those, you know, get those really down, especially when you have poor performance, right? That's when you have a lot of efficiency you have to, you know, build into the system. So I enjoyed like coming up with how are we going to use this legacy stack? How are we going to do it well? And when it came down to was when I started, it was this data warehouse with very, you know, no really standards on how you're going to ingest data or get data or build metrics or even model your data very well. So we just had to come up with a lot of standardization around data ingestion specifically. So we had to, you know, with 400 product managers and, you know, my team was only 20, 25 people. I mean, you know, to scale that we had to go to a project manager and say, let's talk about your actionable metrics. Once we understand what those are, now here's how your team can instrument all of this in the product. So we capture all this data and just build some frameworks that made that really easy to do. Super interesting. Okay. And what was it like when you left? Like how, you know, what were, give us a couple examples of, you know, the ways that product managers were operating with data that they, you know, that they weren't when you started. Yeah. Well, first of all, I guess I should say from a technology standpoint, my, probably my biggest win from a, from the, the stack itself was to be able to get Tableau in there and replace business objects as mm. much as possible. Cause business objects, I must've trained 400 people on that tool. And I don't think any of them ever used it very much. I mean, the, the usability was pretty bad. <laughs> it's a yeah. large SAP project, but product, but Tableau, as, as we, most of us in the data professional world know is much easier to use. So that was, it was great to be able to train in a lot of people to use self-service their data using Tableau, at least at the time. And so, but what was more important, I think, was really just the fact that everybody, including, again, a lot of people outside of product knew how to ad hoc query their data and get answers, you know, how to explore data mm-hmm. and slice and dice on all the dimensions they cared about and then build data products actually out of that. So we built things like an early warning system to detect customer health, essentially, mm-hmm. early warning for unhealthy customers. Let's get them back healthy, healthy. That was really more for customer success, right? The, but it was all based on product usage data from the product teams. Yes. And then of course, the product roadmaps being data-driven was a big thing and making sure that a lot of product managers were making those data-driven decisions. And then the third thing we did that was actually really had a pretty big impact was just internal like advanced analytics. So for instance, we would have a couple folks on the team who could do predictive modeling and we would build a predictive model, not necessarily to predict the future, but just to analyze the system and understand the drivers of success of something. Mm. Regression will tell you You've identified your target. What do you, you know, what success means? It'll give you the top five reasons why that success is being achieved at certain customers, for instance. And so we actually did a bunch of analysis that led to whole new products being built with the results. So pure internal analytics, not operational yeah. like uh, production models or anything, but it was super useful. Yeah, yeah. Did you, interested? Did you do any sort of cross product stuff, right? Because you're collecting it from all these different products. And I mean, the interesting thing about the Salesforce ecosystem is lots of different products. You can, you know, we sort of, you have the CRM in the center, but a big ecosystem of products, like very acquisitive. Did you do anything on that front? You know, I think maybe the closest thing was to develop white space analysis where you really were looking at each customer Mm -hmm. and understanding where the white space was, meaning what are all the products they're not using? 
you know, what are they using, yep. what are they not, how, what are our opportunities mm -hmm. to basically upsell, cross-sell, or at least fill out the picture for customers, but not necessarily like, you know, how one product usage affects the other or, or any of that thing, yep. anything. Yeah. Yeah. Super interesting. Okay. Last question for me, because I've been monopolizing. Do you have any good stories about Mark Benioff? <laughs> oh man. I wish I did, you know, when they were smaller, I thought, where is he? He's got to be walking around here somewhere. Ah. Uh, you know, I have nothing of good things to say about Mark though. I mean, if, of all of the successful, you know, mega successful CEOs like that, first of all, he founded it. What kind of a founder can take it to a hundred plus billion, right? Really stand up guy found creating the foundation. He created the one, one, one model to give back 1% of profit and time and, and created this huge foundation. I just, you know, just really, yeah, just nothing but respect for the guy and what he's done and uh, how he was, he stayed out of the headlines. He, there, you know, he was very stand-up, respectable person that just drove the company to success. But nothing, no amazing stories about him. I liked the parties he threw. He threw great parties. That was really interesting. <laughs> awesome. All nice. right. Well, thank you for, uh, thank you for doing a Salesforce deep dive, Costas. Yes. Take it away. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. So Aaron, you mentioned that you turned into consultancy because you were hungry, like to learn more and like see more like use cases out there and like um, become, like, let's say like an expert much faster, all right, like in this space. So I'd love to hear like what you've learned and so I'll like try to turn this into some kind of like patterns, right? And to do that, like my first question is about like the people who are coming, like this is that are coming and they are asking for your help, right? So what are they asking for? Like what's like the most common, like, let's say project that you see out there is like people coming and saying, oh, like. We don't have like a data strategy, right? And we won't like to implement a data strategy. We won't like to start like identifying the data that we can use, like build the right infrastructure, all that stuff. Or you see more of like a modernization need out there where like you have businesses that they already do something, but they feel like, okay, we probably need like to update a few things if we would like to stay relevant. So. Okay, these are like just like two examples. Hopefully, there are like more and better ones. So, I'd love to hear like what you see out there. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, you know, as I think about even what you're saying there, and I think about how I'm always surprised at how, and maybe that it's the Salesforce story all over again, how, you know, co companies are using data a lot less than you think. And so, we are maybe surprisingly more working on the table stakes, sort of basic stuff, you know, it's just get a data warehouse running and self-service, get data into people's hands, not even advanced analytics, not, you know, predictive modeling necessarily. Let's just get a really great data model that really is a 360 view of the business or the customer to, you know, curate that really well with the, again, data modeling and best practices there. But let's just self-service this data like that. It still remains the number one use case and it hasn't changed in a long time. So we're, we do more normally work with kind of mid-sized companies. So a lot of times they don't have something 
and we're, we are bringing the entire stack to them for the first time. Another good quick, just sports example, there is big 10. So uh, collegial sports conference with 28 sports. They didn't have a data stack at all. So we're building a full stack for them, but it's the innovation there is that all the schools are going to use it too. So it's going to be this shared environment that actually no other sports organization has anything like that. Even the major leagues don't have a really like shared environment like that. They're still sharing files with SFTP. But so, you know, it, unfortunately I don't have these amazing, sexy stories of all of this advanced stuff because it really is just getting data in front of people. You know, I was thinking about what you said about from a pattern and from the business side too, even that is pretty broad. You know, it depends. Some of our clients really want our, you know, they're focused on the financial data and we just need to get uh, financial data in front of people. And they just want to actually create a PL in a BI tool, even, you know, get out of their financial tool. This, the, the pattern really is let's all get out of all of our analytics capabilities of our SaaS applications and let's get into a BI tool where we can do a lot more and do whatever we want. It's a lot more powerful. You know, we have some clients where we're getting their inventory data as a mess. They just need to get on top of their inventory data. For others, it's absolutely marketing is a big case study in general. Like a lot of marketers need a better marketing system and some digital transformation. Some let's get it in the cloud and go full cloud and migrate what we have. But, you know, it, it's just across the board. There's just a lot of almost every department in a company we work with, right? Sales, marketing, finance, and on yeah. Product. yeah. And do you see that like this transformation like happen like stays, let's say in the department or is it like more of like something global that happens like in the company, let's say, let me give you an example, like make it like similar, like, do you see like finance coming and be like, or like we need BI instead of doing everything inside the SAP right? for whatever reason, or it stays there, right? Maybe it's like an opportunity for you, like expanding the accounts, obviously, but, or you see more, let's say broad, like projects where like companies are like, we want to democratize our data. So we don't just want like to take the data out of SAP, but we also want to make sure that like everyone inside the company has access to this data and they can figure out one way or another, like how to get fighting from that. Yeah, we usually do start with a department or two. However, because it's mid-sized companies and not necessarily large enterprises, mm -hmm. uh, good news is that we are able to convince them to make sure this is an enterprise data warehouse solution. It's a central data warehouse for the whole company. We might start with one department, one data set, but even in my stories about, you know, Salesforce there, the product usage data set is you, the entire company can use that, you know, and find value from that. So even if we start with one department, the data is still consumed by a lot of different departments. So that, that's the story. We try, we were huge fans of keep, again, keeping a single source of truth, yeah. one data warehouse. And actually maybe that gets back to your question about patterns again, is that, that I think is the important thing, right? Is to really centralize all your code as much as possible, govern it, keep it governed and controlled. So it doesn't become a mess because trust, if you lose trust in your data, that's the number one killer of data projects. You do have to put a lot of a thought and governance into what you're doing. Yeah, 100%. And like, you, you mentioned the word like data democratization like a couple of times. Like, what does this mean in the context of the company? Yeah, to me, that means as many people as possible who should have access to the data should have it in a self-service way. They don't have to be technical. They have a tool, cloud tool, that 
they can use to then query the data, hopefully ad hoc and ad nauseum if they want to. So mm-hmm. give you a good example, actually back from just before I started this, when I was at Randata Pop Sugar in San Francisco, B2C company, and we democratized the data across every single department. And then my favorite story from there is the PR department. PR department was two people who were trying to put out as many stories as possible. Um, and they had a fashion search data set. So they could actually detect fashion trends anywhere in the world with this data set is pretty fun. But the only way they could get the data and get a story was to submit a request to the data team and wait about two or three weeks, get an answer and write a story. It was very easy to get that data set into a modern cloud stack with a cloud BI tool. In that case, it was Looker. And I was able to train them in about an hour and a half how to query that data to find any fashion trend in any place in the world at any time period, right? And so with just that one training, they were then able to produce a story every day. You know, so that was like 15x productivity because of self-service with, you know, a pretty simple data set. The idea is to get every employee to be able to do that to then sort of incorporate data into their daily job, their business process, and make it more data-driven. That's how you change culture. Yeah. That's super interesting. Like, let's say a little like longer, like in culture, just like super interesting. So, okay. Making like the data accessible is like, obviously like a very important step. Like you have, you need to have like the data that are available like for anyone to go and like, like work with it if we want to democratize that. But that's not enough, right? Like you also need like the people to like know, first of all, that the data is there available and also let's say, build the kind of like thought process of like when they come with a new problem, like to go and reach out for the data and see like how the data is going to help them. So there's also like some kind of, I would say like educational parts in this whole process. How do you see this thing working? Because you know, like many times, like most of the time, maybe all of that, like especially on this show, like we focus like a lot like on the technology side of things, but it's very interesting what you said about like Salesforce and the insights that you tried like to communicate to the sales manager, right? Like at the end, no matter like what kind of data or system you have there, like it's a people's problem, like to adopt and like to use that, right? So how do we make people work with the data, like learn how to use the data, find the data and Maybe we don't have to, I don't know, but like, I'd love to hear like from you, like how big of a problem is and like how we can solve that. Yeah, I think that's still actually a huge problem and it's not like I've cracked that nut completely at all, but that's why I I always come back to data is hard. Even if you're an end user, data is difficult, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Just having the data dictionary that makes sense is a huge challenge, you know, so that an end user can truly understand what they're, what you're using. I think there's always a partnership between a data team or more of a data, more of the data technical folks and the end users, a constant education. And there's always a communication there because when you want new data, you can't just use, you know, wave a magic wand and have it available. So you do need some help there. But I think it comes down to, you know, a lot of iterative training essentially and get, and building people what they need. Once they get the hang of it and they do it a few times, but they can have some small wins quickly, then they're definitely going to keep using it. And there's also just that some people are curious naturally and some people aren't. And if you're not curious, it, yeah. you're probably not going to use data very much. But 
you know, I think it's that small wins quickly. And at the same time, and I, this is kind of what I most love in data is making it as easy as possible. So taking a lot of effort to curate a data set that is easy to use, right? That almost anybody can use. So it takes a lot of work to make sure you've got exactly the dimensions and measures of, you know, whatever you need and not too much and not too little, right? To make it consumable and not boil the ocean, but but also low grain data. I always go back to that. Not, I'm not talking about aggregations of data. I mean, have access to the low grain detailed data, but make it just as clean and easy as it is to understand how to use. And I think a lot of people then finally do um, start to actually use it. And of course you need a tool that makes it easy. As well. Yeah, makes sense, makes sense. And from your experience, both back in Salesforce and today, but like I'm working like in the consultancy. If you could go back to yourself when you went to the sales manager and presented the data, right? What you would say to make that person back then more successful in like this attempt to use data for something? Like, because as you said, like there are people that are like more curious, like you have people that like they are like say champions of like using data inside like the company, but it's not always easy to do that, right? And it's very easy like to get this care on. So what you would suggest, like what's like your advice, let's say to these people, how they can make it happen at the end? Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, if I had been yeah, a little more on top of a pl game plan there, I think I would have said, well, it doesn't hurt to do a little pilot, right? Let's do a little POC. Let's get this in the hands of a sub subgroup of the team. Let's get it, you know, 20, 30 sales reps. And let's see if we can come up with, you know, the top five uh, value and benefits to them of this data and this data set. And let's see if it makes sense. Let's try it out. So, I, you know, perseverance is one of our values. I think that's true in consulting for sure, but it's true everywhere, right? If you persevere enough, you yeah. usually can get what you're looking for. And with a group, that is a little bit of perseverance to again, iterate through a, a something to get mm -hmm. end use, get this in, hand, in the hands of end users, get their feedback and see if you can really understand how it's going to be best implemented. Which function do you think is like the easiest one in the company, like to sell a data related like project? I think marketers are very data driven by nature, right? And there's yeah, so, yeah. Much, so much usage of that data. And again, I think product managers as well. I mean, yeah. uh, if you're building any kind of tech products, understanding usage of that product is pretty key. Uh, those two, I think, are most data-driven kind of. Yeah, I would, I would actually say like the same thing. Probably like I would say sales are like the less open to that stuff. Like unless you can convince them that like you can, you know, take the pipeline and make it the next bigger or something. <laughs> that's the way to work with it. Yeah, that's oh, what yeah. I thought. Maybe if you understood who to talk to, who to focus on in your lead funnel, it makes sense, right? But yeah, um, but, you know, Eric probably had like also some suggestions there because he hasn't worked like a lot on that stuff. But uh, yeah, I think like sales is it's a very interesting and challenging function, like to go and like sell something like that. But what did you think, Eric? Well, you know when thing that's really interesting is the incentive structure is really different for sales, you know, than those other functions. 
you know, if you think about marketing or product, you know, product is motivated by, you know, planning the roadmap and then executing against the roadmap and, you know, perhaps even driving like feature adoption, although maybe that's, you know, sort of like a growth function within product. And then marketing, you know, certainly a little bit closer to the sales side and then like you have numbers to hit. And so you're sort of pursuing those aggressively. But really, even in both of those situations with product and marketing, you're measured on, you know, execution and throughput. And of course, there are key metrics there, right? Feature adoption or, you know, mitigating churn on the product side or whatever it is, right? Activation. And then the marketing side, you have you know, traffic and leads and, you know, all those sorts of things. And of course, they're like performance bonuses and stuff. But when you get into sales, the foundational compensation structure is fundamentally different, right? Like your motivation is tied directly to, you know, primarily one vector. And so I think that's what makes it difficult is like the focus on marketing and product, you know, you're rewarded for measuring because you're rewarded on output, right? And so like measuring is in your best self-interest. And interestingly enough for sales, I'm not saying like, I'm not, this isn't like a dig on sales, but there's just less inherent self-interest in being heavily data-driven because that's not the way that you make money, you know, or make a lot of money. So I don't know, that's my take. But I, I would also say, I think that's changing. You know, I talk to more and more salespeople who are coming from highly technical environments. They need to understand a technical buyer. And the more that once you see the power of using data to help you do your job, even in a sales context, like that, you realize how helpful it can be. So I think that's also changing a lot. And I think that, you know, I see salespeople more and more asking for in even marketing data, right? Like these opportunities, what channels did they come from, right? That's a great question for a salesperson to ask. Not all of them do. But those sorts of things are really interesting because it can help them prioritize or, you know, sort of rank and do other stuff. So I do think it's changing. Yeah, I don't know. Does that answer your question, Costas? Yes. So our Let's go back to, let's get like a little bit more technical, like, and let's talk a little bit more about like the technologies that you see out there being used. Like we have, like we've talked like many times about like the modern data stack, like the clouds that you mentioned before. What are like some trends that you see out there that are really, really let's say transformative and I would uh, my guess is that you will probably like mention like the uh, cloud data warehouse, but together with that, what else is out there that like really enables the data democratization and the self-service around data? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, my world is around data warehouses. So I always start there, but, uh, you know, in my experience, getting the data, yeah, getting the right tool that is going to expose that data, self-service, make it easy. All the stuff we talked about is so critical. And I've been actually only used two BI tools that, so from the BI standpoint, that make that really 
clean, easy, and you just use the right approach. The first one was Looker that I started, uh, actually started this company doing a lot of Looker work because Looker is just a lot, you know, executes live SQL against your data warehouse. So you get instant query, instant result against the most recent data you have. And you can query as much data as you want and add as much details. But I love that. Sigma computing is um, another one that's taken that same approach. We work with a lot of them lately because they've just become so successful in the market. Again, because of that full cloud approach where you don't have to be technical, but behind the scenes, the tool is executing directly queries against your warehouse live. But on top of that, it has a spreadsheet interface. Pretty much everybody knows how to navigate a spreadsheet interface. So the training and the UX is, I'm finding this, you know, that to be pretty incredible in terms of how easy it is to get people using the tool. So I, I like like Sigma computing specifically for BI. And then they're doing a lot more kind of blending traditional analytics with some really cool stuff. Like they, they can write back to the data warehouse and you know, eventually people will be able to use it even more like a spreadsheet, meaning they can even, you know, enter in some of their own data and mesh it with data that's in the data warehouse. Mm -hmm. So fun, really interesting stuff like that. And then this bleeds into like the pattern and the trend that I see that I love is just more and more applications like that, that are running directly on top of the data warehouse. So you have the most recent data you can get. And if there's new data that comes in and instantly available to you and, you know, all of that. So. Uh, in the marketing space, uh, we work with another company, Flywheel Software, that allows marketers to create audiences, run campaigns, do A-B testing, do some AI on top of that, all directly on the data warehouse. And so, I, you know, I, I love seeing these full cloud approaches that are right on top of your stack. And, you know, the, the future of all of this is running more and more of your business directly off the data warehouse. But that's the most exciting trend. I'm seeing out there. But what I have a question for you on what that trend, by the way, I agree, super exciting trend. It's something that Costas and I have talked a ton about. What does that mean for, let's call them maybe real time packaged SaaS analytics tools? So, Google Analytics, you have a whole class of product analytics tools, you know, a la sort of amplitude mix panel, et cetera, which are really useful because it's plug and play, right? I mean, everyone complains about Google Analytics, but the reality is it's ubiquitous in, mar ubiquitous in marketing because it, you just, it re automatically produces all the reports you need. And if you think about, like, if, you, if I said, okay, could you go rebuild all of these views that are in Google Analytics in Sigma? Like, that is an unbelievable undertaking, right? Um, and arguably, like, not necessarily worth it. But obviously, there are severe limitations to Google Analytics, which is why there's a huge movement to the warehouse. So there's this interesting gap. What do you think the future looks like for sort of the package SaaS side of things? So the gap, tell me again, the gap that you're pointing at exactly. So like, you know, Google Analytics is much more limited in terms of data flexibility, querying data points than yeah. being able to do whatever you want in your warehouse. But at the same time, it has all these reports out of the box, right? And it's like, right. well, it doesn't, there's a point at which it doesn't make sense to pay an analyst to rebuild something that's already 
a prepackaged interface that people can just use out of the box. Got and it. so there's yeah. like, I agree that things are moving towards running your business off the warehouse, but you know, there still is a really big gap, like starting out of the box with Looker or Sigma or Tableau and building an entire suite of web analytics is like, yeah, Google Analytics. Yeah, that problem is actually being solved with templates as, and both Sigma and Looker have a way to, for a third party to create all those templates and then just have them plug and play at any client. So I think that's where this is going to go. Like even Google, I mean, I haven't looked lately, but they may have already created this. Right, a Google Analytics suite that if you're using Sigma or using Looker, press a button and it's instantly all those dashboards and reports are actually mm -hmm. there because it only took one person to develop those and then they can deploy that yeah. anywhere. So it's basically a migration of a lot of that logic, but it's a one-time migration that everybody can take advantage of. So that'll be where it goes in the long term is that, you know, that's going to make a lot of sense because the reason, again, you made the good point is why would you even want to do it in your warehouse in the first place? Well, A, there's a lot more flexibility in the way you do it. B, you can bring in data from any other data source right into that report from your Google Analytics report, essentially, and yeah. tack it on. And you can do that in 10 minutes rather than the five days it would take you to do in Excel. So, yeah. So I think that's, that, you know, all of the forces are driving people to the data warehouse because of efficiency and, you know, this is the logical place and all of that work that's yeah. done there. And so all these problems will be solved through templatization, migration of certain things and so yep. forth. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's, I think the challenge that I've seen a lot of companies face in that process is that once you get full configurability, you start changing. Like one of the interesting things about package SaaS is that there are guardrails, right? And so you, they sort of force you to build like meaningful reports because you are limited yeah. in what you can do. Yeah. And when you remove those limitations, right, you go down these customization paths that are like, okay, you know, it's, it's getting way too crazy. But yeah, I agree. That's, uh, that's super interesting. Sorry, Costas, I jumped in, interrupted. Uh, no, 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 no. You should more often, to be honest, like my, my pleasure. Please go on. Uh, uh, yeah. So we were discussing about the technologies. Any favorites? I know that's like a hard thing to ask, like from someone with like, consulting, but let's take like data warehouses, right? Like there's a lot of evolution and innovation happening there from like starting with Redshift and having today like to products like Snowflake. So what do you love to work with and what you would have, let's say, suggestions on how to improve? Yeah. And it's still a really amazing, I mean, one of the exciting things about this whole space is it's kind of fractured. There are a lot of vendors and there's a lot of ways you can do this. And at Data Cliver here, we are technology neutral at the end of the day. So we're trying to use best in class solutions. So if another new best in class data warehouse comes along, we're definitely going to take advantage of that. Snowflake has just become the, almost a de facto for us at least. And it's not necessarily because we made that choice early on and said, we're only, you know, we're doing Snowflake. They just took over the market. A lot of our clients, by the time we even talked to them, which was pretty early in their data strategy, had already, you know, kicked the tires on Snowflake because they were so ubiquitous. So when I started this, yes, it was a lot of Redshift, Amazon Redshift, and a little bit of BigQuery. And, you know, it really shifted to Snowflake. So now like 90% of our projects plus are Snowflake. As soon as I saw Snowflake and started playing with it, I mean, yeah, it's just made a ton of sense, you know, to separate compute from storage, never get stuck with 
scalability, essentially. Mm-hmm. Just get rid of all the headaches. The way I described it all the time was you get rid of pretty much every technical headache of data warehousing. You know, you don't yeah. need an EPA anymore. You don't need to worry about compression and performance and scaling and, you know, uh, compute even. You can just keep adding compute really easily. You can do it programmatically even. So you can scale it up and scale it down as you want. So all these features and then data sharing across multiple data database inst- uh, data warehouse implementations so that it looks as if the data is in your data warehouse, but it's actually in somebody else's data warehouse. Like stuff like that, that only the cloud can do kind of blew my mind. So when I saw this, I thought, yo, yeah, this is the place to be. And sure enough, I mean, we've never had any issues with, you know, Snowflake implementation or any regrets. So Snowflake is by in for us, at least the de facto standard we do. And then for data, I mean, there's really three pieces to data warehousing in my mind. There's the data warehouse itself. There's data ingestion, and you could talk about reverse ETL, getting the data back out of the data warehouse into systems. And then there's your visualization or your end user applications, right? So for the data movement, essentially, Fivetran has always been a a very solid product for us. So we love Fivetran. And we, again, I mentioned Sigma Computing for the BI layer, a lot of those kind of tools. Uh, DBT as well. I mean, DBT is really wonderful product to use. I I love the fact that they came on the scene and also solved problems that you thought might've been solved by now, but or not necessarily, or not in an elegant way. Like DBT sort of solves a lot of data modeling challenges in an elegant way. Makes sense. Uh, Mm -hmm. Sorry, I was going to, I was, didn't mean to interrupt. I was going to mention back to your, Eric, our discussion about templates and packages, even DBT has packaged up all these modeling pre-packaged yeah. modeling solutions, right? So there's another good example of, oh, you can plug and play a Shopify model or whatever, you know, whatever it is because these vendors are out there and they're standard. Sure. One last question from me about like the data warehouses. So you mentioned like Red Sea, Big Reader and Snowflake, and you were going through like the features of like Snowflake. It makes a lot of sense. Like when you compare it with something like Red Sea, right? But like BigQuery always was and still is like a a very like self-service kind of like data warehouse. It scales like you don't even have like to define warehouses. Like someone could say that it's like even more, let's say, serverless or easy to use that like Snowflake. Why do you think that like Snowflake, sorry, BigQuery hasn't managed like to get more traction than it has? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think for me, at least early on, I would always get nervous when I realized it's still a shared resource and it's still a little bit hard to calculate exactly what your compute will be. Whereas Snowflake, it was just guaranteed. And so there was that. There was also just the pricing model of, you know, based on the scanning, you know, scanned records and how do you predict what that's going to look like for your cost model going forward that, that was a little harder to get my head around then at least I understand compute minutes in Snowflake and I can probably get a good idea of how long something should run and therefore I can try to predict my cost a little better. So I, I'm guessing, I mean, that is literally the non, the less technical side of things, but it's really the marketing, you know, the go-to-market approach for BigQuery that, that made it a little more difficult for people to get their head around. It's my guess. Super interesting. Super interesting. Yeah, I totally agree, actually. Eric, all yours. All right. Well, we're really close to the buzzer here, as I like to say, but one question I'd love to know. So 
you said, okay, two big projects over a decade. I want to do 50 of these a year, you know, hundred of these a year. Yeah. What's your favorite part? You know, and I would say like of the process, not necessarily the outcome, because of course it's great when, you know, the company says, man, this is amazing. Like everyone's logging into their dashboards every day and we make good decisions, but you know, that's of course the outcome and that's great. And we all love that. But in terms of the process that leads there, what's your favorite part? Like, you know, if you had to get your hands dirty going through that journey, which part would you choose to focus on? Oh, I hands down love, love the delight on an end user's face, you know, when they get it and you've taught them just enough to be dangerous with their data. Right. And so to me, it's that last mile of like, here, I kind of talked about this before, right? Curating that data set to be so exactly what that, what a group of users needs, let's say that's just simple enough to use, but also complex that it's very meaningful. So I love the curation part really. And that you step back farther, that's really data modeling, right? Yeah. So I yeah. really enjoy the modeling, of, but much a little less slow of the low level modeling, but the high level modeling, like that semantic layer sort of final modeling where you're pre predefining all your joins and you're making sure your fan outs are not going to cause problems and all, all the things that you worry about in terms of making a data set bulletproof. So a, a user can't shoot themselves in the foot. They're always going to get the right answer, easy to use. So I just love that final step of curating the set and then training them up and showing them how to use it and then watching their eyes light up when they say, oh my God, I can do this and this and I can slice and dice however I want. And I, you know, I answer questions ad hoc. That's probably why I focus on data democratization too, but I just I do like that last mile of the journey the most. Yeah, that's super cool. I kind of view that as a great example of sort of art and science, right? You can almost think about it as an architect, you know, where it's like, okay, well, you're building a house, but if you're trying to bring someone, someone's vision to life, you know, you have the ability to, you know, shape it in a way that sort of brings them delight as an outcome, which is, you know, really specific to businesses and users depending on their use cases. So very cool. Well, Aaron, this has been... Such a great show. Appreciate the time. Learned a ton. I'll look for an invite from Mark Benioff for one of his parties because I hear that they're really good. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to both of you. It was a great discussion. Thanks for talking shop. I always love it. You know, one thing I think that is so interesting about Aaron's story that we've heard so much on the show, and this is going to sound so cliche, but you know, the people side of things is always the hardest. And he referred back to that over and over again, you know, just in terms of like, how do you make progress in an organization in terms of becoming data-driven? And it's, I guess maybe my big takeaway, this is how I would frame it, Costas. I love talking with people like Aaron because they just don't talk about the tools when you ask them about becoming data-driven, right? Like, it's so simple for them, right? It's like, I mean, I need to ingest data. Like, how are you going to do that? Well, it doesn't really matter. There's lots of good tools, right? You need to warehouse data. And it's like, well, how are you going to do that? And they're like, well, I mean, like Snowflake's great, but like everything's pretty good, right? And then it's like, well, you need visualization. And it's like, well, how do you do that? And they're like, we have a couple tools we prefer, but like everything's pretty good. <laughs> like, I just love it. Like for Aaron, things are kind of simple. You know, you have ingestion, you have, you know, storage, you have modeling, and then you visualize it so that people can make decisions. And like they've changed preferred vendors over time. But like 
he wants to help people make better decisions. And it's really refreshing to just hear the perspective of like, all the tools are awesome. And maybe we prefer some of them, but really it doesn't matter what you use. It's actually about like getting a good data model and delivering like really clear visualization and dashboards so that people can make decisions. So I love that. I think it's so great. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Like, and I love the focus on like the human factor, to be honest, like, because that's what it is, right? Like you can have the best technology out there, but you need the culture and like to educate the people on how to use this data and like how to think in terms of data and they make decisions or like make it part of their work, right? I think like, especially like the example that he gave about his own experience back at Salesforce, mm. he went like to yeah. and sales were like, okay, yeah, that's cool. But why do we need it in, in case like. We call every the, customer. Yeah. Like, so I think that was like a really good part of like a, the conversation that we had. And yeah, it's one of these things that you can, you need a consultant. You need someone yeah. with like, you know, implementing, but it's not part of the system itself. Right. So it's sure. so an observer and like, they can see what's going on and like, they can see what the bottlenecks are. And uh, yeah, looking forward to have him again on the show and like discuss more about this. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you're a vendor in the modern data stack, every problem, you know, is a nail that the modern data stack needs to <laughs> And it's really refreshing to hear from someone like, like Aaron, who brings it back to basics. So thanks for joining us. We'll have many more great guests on the show and we will catch you on the next one. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Data Stack Show. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get notified about new episodes every week. We'd also love your feedback. You can email me, Eric Dodds, at eric at datastackshow.com. That's E-R-I-C at datastackshow.com. The show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. Learn how to build a CDP on your data warehouse at rudderstack.com.